1: I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet.
0: Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by Tony Black. How are you, Tony?
1: I'm good, thanks, Duncan. Yeah, I'm um I'm I'm vaccined up
0: and I'm ready to roll. <laughs> You're one for two, I think. Just yeah, like me, well, in yeah. fact. I'm I had my I had my first vaccine a couple of days ago. In fact, I snuck in slightly before the official deadline for my age group because I happened to be at the surgery anyway and they, they had a spare that day. But um so I'm still slightly, I think. Suffering the side effects of that first one in that I just feel a bit kind of generally wiped. But, um, yeah, looking forward to number two in a couple of months' time.
1: Yeah. Do you feel generally like you've just time warped around the sun and you're a little bit dazed? from the experience. Is it that kind of feeling?
0: Something like that. Yeah, you, you could say something <laughs> like that, or or maybe, you know, jumped 100 years into the future. Uh, I mean, we have been... Th- this vaccine was, for a long time, this kind of mythical point in the future, wasn't it? I remember at the yeah. start of the pandemic, they were saying, oh, we're going to develop a vaccine. That'll be the key moment. And it might take a year or so. And back then, that just seemed sort of unimaginable that we were going to wait so long for this thing. But they were pretty much bang on the money, I'd say, really. I mean, that is sort of roughly the timescale we're kind of working to yeah i mean it's good to good to have it you know even if it does have the odd side effect sort of a sense that things are kind of gradually getting back to normal isn't it
1: yeah it's nice it's nice let's fingers crossed it
0: continues that way for sure i know these could be famous last words (laughs) yeah (laughs) but we'll see yeah yeah you've got um a new book out is that right is your book out officially i've got an advanced copy uh from you but are you is it on the shelves it's yeah it's out now it's it on the e is, um, it's out in paperback as well as because i know sometimes the ebooks come out earlier these these days
1: yeah the ebook came out earlier in april uh or to the very end of march but it is out yeah in paperback now star trek history and us uh, reflections um of the past and present of the of the star trek franchise yeah um it is basically primitive culture the book Essentially, (laughs) I said it. I said it in the foreword. I said it. I've said it to you. It is, it wouldn't exist without this podcast. So I just, um, I just took a lot of the conversations we've had and listened to a lot of the episodes that we've done and a few other things around it and I put it into a book. So it was extremely fun to write during the first pandemic lockdown where, yeah, we were all terrified and we were all waiting for that vaccine. And I just thought, okay, I'm going to write this book now. So it wasn't all bad.
0: That's true. Yeah. Well, yeah, you had a productive lockdown. I mean, uh, I have to say, I didn't have a very productive lockdown last year. Feels like a bit of a, you know, talking about these like time travel blur, feels like a (laughs) bit of a blur. And, And frankly, you know, we were just saying before we started recording, you know, when did we last do one of these? I, I had no idea. I mean, <laughs> i said this before, I think. It feels like in the last year or so, time has just sort of lost its meaning somehow, I suppose, because the usual ways that we kind of measure it in some ways have, uh, in many cases, fallen by the wayside. But um Very exciting. Anyway, uh, congratulations. This is book two for you, I think. We will certainly have a a dedicated episode of Primitive Culture uh, to talk about your book in the near future. Lovely. Uh, Thank you. I just thought I'd mention it for any listeners who want to get hold of a copy in the meantime. And even, you know, send in some questions. If you've got questions for Tony having read the book, then... um, Drop us a line, and uh, when we come back, probably the next time we record uh, to talk about it, I will put them to him. Lovely, yeah. <laughs> in, my, in my sort of interviewer style. Um, Excellent. But yeah, we're not talking about that today. Today we are talking about a 1979 film, the directing debut of Nicholas Meyer, who obviously had a very big impact on the Star Trek franchise. It's a film called Time After Time. Now, I have to say, I... I don't think I'd even heard of this film a few years ago. I watched it for the first time last year when I was interviewing Maya, because I thought I'd better familiarise myself with his kind of filmography. Uh, I found it quite hard to track down at that time, but it is a bit of a kind of cult classic, I think. Um, and it is very much uh, a key stepping stone in his career that in various ways led into Star Trek not least as he says rather modestly in his autobiography The View from the Bridge because it did not do as well as was expected and that's how he ended up doing The Wrath of Khan because basically his agent was saying you know okay you did your film uh, now you need to do one for them kind of thing (laughs) and (laughs) Wrath of Khan is the the job he took sort of that he wasn't necessarily all that excited about but also because it shares a lot of DNA really uh, with the next Star Trek film that he came to write the voyage home which bizarrely uh sort of coincidentally has a lot of features in common with this movie as well
1: can i just say first and foremost i love the fact that nick myers one for them is one of if not the greatest science fiction movie ever made that's top (laughs) class nick Myers. you know
0: i have to say he did say when i you know when i interviewed him one thing that i thought was quite interesting that he said was that he is not. He doesn't see himself as someone who comes up with great ideas. He sees himself as someone who kind of takes other people's ideas and runs with them. Uh, and this is the case with time after time. This was an unfinished novel a friend of his had written uh, and showed him. I think about fifty pages to get his feedback, and he immediately loved it and said, "I want to option it. I want to make this. I want to write the script." And then ended up kind of writing his own version of the story off of that. And and similarly, obviously, with the of Khan you know, famously, there were all these scripts that weren't working and he was the one who could kind of come in and take all these other pieces of other people's bits of stories and somehow bring them into a cohesive whole. Uh, that, as you say, obviously, you know, certainly from our perspective as a masterpiece, uh, that, that that, I suppose, is how he saw his talent, really, was kind of um, developing ideas rather than necessarily coming up with that original spark. Which is... A talent in itself, I think, you know, to
1: take an idea, you know, and manage to create something that you would think would be his. I mean, I don't think anyone without the necessarily the knowledge going into time after time would really know that that was a novel as such, you know, until you see that it's by Carl Alexander. You know, it feels very much his own thing. And as does Star Trek too. you know, The Wrath of Khan absolutely does. And his contributions to the voyage home. But I think it's because they're all... You know, particularly Voyage Home and Time After Time, they're all in a, of a similar piece in the sense that Meyer is very interested in bringing Star Trek down to Earth in all kinds of different ways. You know, and you we've talked at length before about things like the Undiscovered Country and, and the Wrath of Khan. But in The Voyage Home, he does essentially replicate... The basic tenets of Time After Time's plot, really, <laughs> you know, it's just it—it's just almost rever- in reverse in many ways. You know, it just happens to be that Kirk and Spock and Co. come from the future, whereas in Time After Time, it's the classic author H.G. Wells using his time machine to chase Jack the Ripper into the future from the Victorian era, which. Is is just the the reversal kind of story. Thematically, there are differences. They're not not necessarily exactly the same, same kind of story. You know, Time After Time is much more about, you know, Maya describes it as such, but it is also clear that it's very much about the duality within humanity, in a sense. You know, you have good versus evil, essentially. And the utopian view of the future versus the dystopian reality of the future, certainly from you know, the, the Victorian perspective. Whereas Star Trek four is all about essentially saving the future by correcting or liberating the mistakes of, of 20th century man. So they kind of meet in that middle, I think, you know, in that you've got Kirk and co coming back to save George and Gracie because of human, humanity's ecological destruction. And then you've got HG Wells coming from the past to stop Jack the Ripper bringing an archaic you know evil into a modern day where he fits you know he fits really well although you know it's dated slightly because it's, it's david warner in the age of disco which is wonderful to behold now <laughs> but like but that that concept is still there so it's interesting how maya sort of picks out some of the essential mix and matches match things and and tells a similar kind of story in different contexts
0: i think you're right and one of the things that is quite interesting about time after time which is you know broadly speaking a comedy as voyage home is but there's definitely some slightly meatier ideas in there and they're very star trek ideas really these two opposing philosophies of human nature in a sense you know wells as this kind of utopian uh it's almost you, you could say it's almost like the two sides of star trek uh around that time as well, you know, Wells is the kind of Roddenberry, the idealist, the one who thinks that human beings are going to become better and perfect themselves. And he believes going a hundred years into the future, he keeps saying, I mean, it's going to be utopia. It's, you know, and then when he realizes, uh, he's brought. Jack the Ripper, along essentially, uh, he says, "Oh no, I've you know I sort of introduced this monster into Utopia." Uh, obviously, he discovers that you know Utopia is not quite uh, what they've ended up with by then. And then Jack the Ripper is kind of representing this much more cynical view. Uh, I mean, going a bit further than I think Maya's own slightly cynical take on Star Trek, but you, you know, yeah. but even so, the kind of the flip side of the coin, sort of saying, well, actually, you know, maybe humans are naturally kind of uh, depraved and evil, and you, you know, have these kind of urges and these this terrible side within them, very much like the original series episode, um, "The Enemy Within." Weirdly, it's that kind mm-hmm. of dichotomy, that kind of uh, debate. And you're right, even though the novel. Uh, obviously it was written by someone else, it, it does feel very much like Meyer's story. I think partly because the film he'd done before this and the novel he'd done before this was The 7% Solution, which was about Sherlock Holmes and Sigmund Freud. Another story about, you know, two legendary figures, one fictional, one uh, real in this instance, um, coming together and the kind of clash between those two huge sort of iconic Uh, characters, in a sense. Um, And I suppose you get the same thing here with Wells and Jack the Ripper, who ultimately we don't know as much. I mean, I don't know about you, I don't know a huge amount about H.G. Wells, the man. I've read a handful of his stories. We don't know anything really about Jack the Ripper. I mean, they've had to invent a kind of character for him in this version. He's a a doctor uh, and so he has a sort of personality, but it's kind of built around this philosophy, I suppose, this rather cruel, violent, nasty philosophy that he seems to uh, sort of subscribe to. But so there's this sense of this kind of clash of these two uh, ideas in there. Obviously, The Voyage Home, I think, similarly, is kind of a film of two halves. It's also a kind of broadly a light comedy, but it's got all the kind of eco stuff in there. It's got this kind of real message. Um, So I think with both films, he manages to sort of combine this real whimsical kind of lightness and this, the kind of absurdity of the present day environment as experienced by aliens effectively uh through, you know, whether they're from the past or the future by people who don't fit into the present day. Um But also to marry that with something a little bit more meaty kind of going on underneath. And weirdly, of course, there's the bizarre, um, coincidence that both these films not only take place in the present day, whether it's 1979 or 1980, whatever it is, three or four, whenever um, uh, Voyage Home takes place, but they both take place in exactly the same place, San Francisco. And Meyer, in fact, when he was brought in to work on Star Trek IV, very much as had been the case with Star Trek II, where there was this kind of crisis and the scripts weren't working and they didn't know what to do, uh, they brought him in. There's quite a funny section in his autobiography where he he talks about it and he says, uh, the executive or whoever calls him in and says, Nicky, we have an emergency. Can you come over here right <laughs> away like to the studio? He goes there. She says, we're four weeks away from starting prep and we need a whole new script. We want to keep the central story, but start over with the screenplay. Can you help us? So basically, he's kind of summoned again to save the day uh, because they know they've, uh the same thing has happened again, that they've kind of screwed up and this story's run away with itself and, and they are about to start filming and they actually don't have a script. And so they tell him the story and he kind of says... Uh Oh, no, not San Francisco. You know, I literally just made a film about, well, a few years ago now, but you know, I, I, I made a film about time travellers in San Francisco. Can't we do it somewhere else? And he tries to persuade them that they could do it in Paris. And they argue, no, it has to be San Francisco, because that's where Starfleet is based. And it's very important that that's, you know, that's the kind of location of star trek in some way and then maya uh in his slightly cynical way says that you know he can't help thinking that it had a bit more to do with the budget and the fact that filming in paris was going to be a lot more expensive but anyway in the end he agreed uh he obviously lost that battle and agreed to write the film even though it was going to be treading familiar ground in some ways
1: i'd like to just revisit a couple of the things we we covered there actually i mean firstly the the 7% solution and the you know, the Holmes and Freud thing, which is, in a sense, he does repeat that, in a way, in that, like you said, Jack the Ripper, in this, John Leslie Stevenson is the character's name, played by David Warner, who is a fictional character, but he's a, he's essentially a an amalgam or a, a play on a lot of the genuine long-time theories about Jack the Ripper's identity over the years. You know, there are equal theories that he was... Uh, Either a royal at the time, if you go into the conspiracy law, or he was, or the one I've personally subscribed to, and I think he's the most logical, is that he was a a physician and he was potentially a physician linked to the royal family. And there's a, if you watch or you read the comic, the graphic novel From Hell and the subsequent movie with Johnny Depp, it, it presents that theory, you know, that was then made into a story of that character. Um, that possible and that real life character, I think, who was possibly Jack the Ripper. Anyway, the idea that he's a physician in many ways makes sense because of the way he killed and the, 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 the nature of his crimes. So it takes a fictional idea and it presents Jack the Ripper as the Holmes, if you like, but flipped in the sense that you had Holmes as a fictional character and Freud as the real person. In this case, you've got a fictional Jack with the real life H.G. Wells. So I think that that's an interesting re- repeat just in reverse that he does there. And I suppose it makes sense... I mean, on, on several levels, it makes sense to use H.G. Wells, which and obviously this idea comes from Carl Alexander ultimately because Meyer says, doesn't he, in the interview from the bridge, that he never would have come up with this himself. It's a great idea and he wishes he had, you know, and then he loved it so much that he carried it on. So the credit goes to Alexander. But it makes sense to to have Wells in this because obviously he... He's most famous for The Time Machine. Uh, incidentally, made in 1960 into one of my favourite movies, which is absolutely an inspiration for this, The Time Machine by George Powell, starring Rod Taylor. And it, it's a fantastic movie. I've, I've loved... I mean, it's old. It's really kitsch and old now. But I love that film to bits. I grew up watching that. And you and it is... The story of that is... is a, a, and a Victorian guy... Um, called George, I think his name's George, who uh, builds a time machine and goes into the far future. And he he's he convinced that the far future is going to be this amazing place, something like 800,000 years into the future. And he finds that humanity is regressed into this childlike race called the Eloi, who are constantly being kidnapped and enslaved by these underground creatures called the Morlocks, who turn out to be an off- another offshoot of humanity, who live in caves down and they're monsters, and, it, and it's a brilliant story. And it is ultimately, along the way, he 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 goes into the future and he sees world wars. You know, I think in that film you see a potential third world war that's in, set in somewhere like nineteen eighty something. <laughs> you know, at that point, hmm. so there is a lot in that story about this futurism that Wells was fascinated in, and it's been said of him. The author of a a book, uh, Stranger Than We Can Imagine, by John Higgs, said that Wells saw the coming century clearer than anyone else in the 19th century. He anticipated wars in the air, the sexual revolution, motorised transport causing the growth of suburbs, and a proto-Wikipedia he called the world brain. In his novel, The World Set Free, he imagined an atomic bomb of terrifying power that would be dropped, atomic bombing quote marks, of terrifying power that would be dropped from aeroplanes this was an extraordinary insight from an author writing in 1913 and it made a deep impression incidentally on winston churchill so this is this is the kind of guy who believes in this utopian future and obviously every he wrote when he wrote the time machine and, it, and what i like about time after time is that it sort of incorporates the lore of the time machine book in that when wells goes into the future he sees that he wrote this book <laughs> so he ends up basing that story in some ways on what he actually experienced which i think is a great little bit of myth to it but i it, it is ultimately about going to the future and not and finding the future is not what you thought it was and that is very much the core of time after time in that he believes there'll be no war there'll be no guns there'll be no violence by and then he gets to 1979 and it's 1979 you know <laughs> and it, it's just so i think that's very interesting in that he he i think he likes the idea maya of and you see this in star trek of a character out of time, who is forced to reconsider the circumstances of that time and that era, and placing them out of the time they're in, and that almost that not if not culture clash, then that time clash that happens. I think that he, I think he
0: gets a kick out of that idea in a big way, particularly with these two films. Absolutely, and it's interesting. I mean, I hadn't really thought about the actual kind of plot of the time machine. But you're right, obviously the the Eloy and the Morlocks are almost stand-ins again for these two visions of humanity in a sense in that the Eloys seem very innocent. They seem quite naive. They seem a bit uh they're a bit hopeless in some ways. The Morlocks are all the they're the Jack the Rippers. Do you know what I mean? So again that kind of interest in that duality comes right from the source material uh, in that sense. It's quite funny as well in the film. I mean, they don't really go into this, but I assume we're meant to think what what happens is when he goes into the future, the time machine, I mean, you would imagine the time machine, you know, the film starts off in London in Wells's uh, basement, basically, well, in his house and the time machine's in the basement. You imagine the time machine would go forward into the future and arrive in the same place, I. In that basement, but in fact, it ends up in an h g Wells exhibit in a museum in san francisco um, and they don 't ever really talk about it, but I assume the idea is that the time machine sort of somehow latches onto all the wells' paraphernalia mm. and finds what it thinks is the closest to the place it 's come from insofar as this uh, museum is full of all h g wells 's books and his his glasses his you, you know his his sort of stuff basically is in this museum, and that therefore that 's why the time machine um, kind of lands there rather than just going forward in time to nineteen seventy-nine London. That's more uh, like a TARDIS than the, the, yeah. <laughs> the time machine <laughs> than the time
1: machine in yeah. the time machine which did what you say, it stayed in the ba- in the in the house and it goes forward like thousands mm. of years
0: and it's exactly yeah, the it's same exactly. place. Yeah. Whereas this,
1: yeah, like you yeah. say, it's more time and space this
0: one, isn't it? Well I mean obviously there's this issue with time travel that people always uh ask about. You, you know, the earth is not in a fixed place in the galaxy uh do you know what i mean actually if you mm. go to a different time that you know you would have to kind of uh calculate for that but um usually uh on tv and in film when we see time machines operating i mean if you think of like the delorean in back to the future even which is a film that it owes a big debt time after time i think um you you, you know it literally it, it's kind of um in terms of space, it's continuous. Do you know what I mean? You keep going and you, you, you're going along the road and then the road turns into the dirt track or whatever it is, or it turns into the future, uh, future road or whatever. Um, but yeah, in this instance, there has to be a translation across space as well as across time. Um, so that, you know, again, quite randomly we end up in San Francisco. I mean, obviously Star Trek four had reasons for wanting to be in San Francisco. I'm kind of curious why. I mean, presumably this was not Meyer's choice to make it San Francisco this time around. This was his friend who wrote the original novel. Uh, It is sort of an interesting choice. I I think there's meant to be this idea that it's quite a modern city, that it's quite a sort of liberated city. uh, That, you you know, the woman that Wells falls in love with is presented very much as a kind of modern... emancipated woman i mean she in the movie she asks him out on a date uh you know both this and the undiscovered country they have these kind of quite sort of classic sort of hollywood in time after time she's a bit more sort of kooky uh Gillian in the voyage home feels a bit more sort of meg ryan type to me do you know what i mean but very much a sort of hollywood type um and a sort of modern type of that era uh and that's that's the kind of encounter that the hero has um Obviously, Kirk doesn't quite end up getting the girl, although he kind of lays on the charm and everything. At the end, there's that great scene where, uh, okay, she says she's going to call him, but she basically ditches him and goes off, <laughs> you know, to pursue her career. See you around the galaxy. time after time, exactly, in time after time, there's this discussion and the, the woman is like, you know, I can't go back to Victoria London. You know, I've got a career. The, my, my my career is important to me. But then ultimately, she does go back to Victoria London and becomes his wife and, you know, who knows what happens to her next, but she sort of accepts being, uh, you know, put to some extent in that box of that time. Obviously, Gillian gets to go forward. She has to go back. So, you know, arguably going forward would be um, a better option. And they do discuss it in the film, but then they kind of ultimately, um, that's not where they end up. They don't end up going into the far future. They do end up going back because he's got to write his novels and he's got to, you know, be the great man that he he was. She
1: was... Well, well another nice thing that Carl Alexander does is that the character of Amy Robbins was actually Welles' second wife's name and so yeah he, he takes again he, pl- he he pulls from that you know real life uh, person and he, and he sort of adapts it into this story but yeah it is it is interesting how you know in that in time after time he is all about going into the future he wants to he went, all, all the people around him, all the boorish Victorians are like, this is poppycock, Wells, and all the, When they see his, his time machine, they say, oh, well, you're going to the past, surely you're going to see this? And he's like, no, I want to see what happens next. You know, I, I want to see... Which makes sense from, you know, the Victorian-era perspective, I think, in many ways, especially given that Wells, politically, was very liberal-minded. You know, he was a socialist, ultimately. Ultimately, You know, a member of the Fabian Society. You know, and, and he... He was all about equality, human rights, sexual, you know, liberation. He would have, he would have been, he would have loved the sixties. I think, you know, Wells. I think he'd have had a great time. And he, so he was quite forward-thinking and progressive, you know, within reason for his day. And I think that's what you see in the character of Wells here. It's interesting how Maya likes to play with this idea of. This woman who is prepared to leave everything behind. And, you know, the the difference with Gillian is that she leaves, she doesn't leave everything behind for Kirk, whereas Amy leaves everything behind for Wells because she falls in love with him. And she's, you know, I think she's like a bank teller or a bank clerk in San Francisco. And she seems she's got a decent enough life, but there's nothing there that will keep her. And, but Gillian says the same thing, you know, she says, I've got nobody here, I've got nothing here. And she goes, to be with, well, it's first off to be with the whales and make sure the whales are okay. But then she's like you say, she's got this excitement about the future. Whereas, yeah, it's so, so it's, 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 it's like this story is, is going in reverse in two different directions in a way. You know, start the voyage home takes it all back to the future, whereas time after time takes it back to the past and it has, it places these women who are of their of their time maybe slightly different kinds you know Amy's much more a woman of the 70s and Gillian is much more a woman of the 80s I think but it is all about displacing them and placing them in a different time period and having them you know go have have different kinds of adventures for Amy she has the adventure of a life with Wells where she will be I think she says in that film you don't expect me to be doing this what you know this the x y and z she would have gone back to 1895 and be seen as, you know, wow, she's like on oh, his, she's equal to him. She's doing this, she's doing that, you know. She would be where and Jillian is going to the future as a 20th century woman. And, and I, I always wondered, I would always have loved to have seen a follow-up story with her, even if I don't know if that ever happened in um, time fiction. It must have done over the years, but I'm sure it must have done. It, it must, must have yeah. done. But I feel like that's a story that would be interesting to see how she then adapts to the actual utopian future that Wells himself believed in and wanted to see. In some respects, you know, I think you were right to call him like a a proto Gene Roddenberry in that sense. In many ways, he is a futurist. He is thinking about the future. Um, So yeah, it's it's another aspect I think that Wells is really uh,
0: that uh, Maya he's really interested in well we never got a chance to catch up with jillian again and obviously she wasn't the the one who was uh you know kirk was looking for in the nexus so presumably it you know, <laughs> <laughs> didn't didn't work out in the long term but, but just, i will mean,
1: never understand that like i'll never understand the nexus thing well, who is this antonia he had like about 10 other oh, women knows. that he could I have mean... said and he go and we get antonia who cares about antonia you know it's mad
0: well, <laughs> anyway, it's, you know, an opportunity for yet more tie-in fiction, I suppose, <laughs> isn't it? And, and, and more headcanon. Yeah. But um, what I was just going to say, I think the interesting thing is that Voyager almost did go down that route with Rain Robinson in Future's End, because there was an ah. idea to bring her back and make her a regular, which I think would have really? been, you know, of all the kind of slightly the moments where voyager could have done something more brave or exciting i think that's one of the great ones actually i mean sarah silverman was fantastic in that role i think Mm. and if they could have kept her on as a series regular i think that would have been it would have added a real kind of doctor who vibe i suppose is you know what you'd get that sort of sense of the companion the person out of time uh who's kind of wowed by everything but um you know that could have been a that could have been another direction you know the Looking to replace Kess around that time, that would obviously have been another way they could have gone and we wouldn't have had seven of nine and, you know, everything would have been very different. But I kind of, I would love to see that. I think that's quite an appealing sort of gimmick in some ways to try and to, you know, to give that kind of outsider's perspective on Star Trek. We got it in Star Trek beyond to some extent with Jailer, didn't we? Who, you know, was kind of very much giving that kind of outsider's perspective on it all. Quite sarcastic, quite kind of you know, a sort of sideways glance in a way at the sort of Starfleet crew. I think that worked quite well. But um, but yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting that both these stories feature a romance at the heart of them. I mean, they're weird stories, I think. They're, they're both, you know, wacky plots for a start. I yeah. mean, let's be honest. <laughs> you know, The Voyage Home is a bizarre plot. I mean, we all love it because it's the one with the whales and everyone loves it and it's a brilliant film. But on paper it does sound slightly mad i mean their plan you know and they make a joke in the film they're basically like so let me get this right we're going to go back in time (laughs) to rescue two humpback whales bring them into the future and see if they magically communicate with this probe that we don't understand and everything is fine uh and obviously it works and that's great and it's you know it's a lovely story but it's kind of mad time after time is also pretty mad frankly um one of the things. I find baffling about that film, and I've seen it three times now. And every time, I find it myself confused by this. Is there's this whole business about the the how the time machine works and the key? You have to have the key, or the machine will go back, or it won't go <laughs> back, or who has the you know? And the key is this sort of MacGuffin. But I don't know about you. I I literally have never watched this film and actually understood the mechanics of how it's working. Someone it doesn't matter because you know it 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 is just a MacGuffin. It's just this kind of minor element, and you sort of accept it. But I think with Star Trek 4, although the plot is kind of ridiculous, uh, on one level, it all, ma- it makes a lot of sense. The goals are very clear. It's like, okay, we've got to get these whales. We've got to get the stuff for this tank. We've got to get this power for the, you know, everyone's got their little mission, their sort of submission, and the crew sort of splits up. I suppose because they've got this big ensemble and everyone has to have something to do, they have to be more of these kind of smaller elements. I mean, I don't know about you. I know you're a big fan of Time After Time. Um, I enjoy it a lot. I think it's, I think it's a good film. It's not to me a sort of all time classic the way The Voyage Home is. Uh, I have a few sort of issues with it. And maybe part of it is the fact that The Voyage Home, they have very clearly defined sort of mission. Whereas time after time, it has this weird thing of, is it just this fish out of water falling in love? And the romance seems quite central to it. Whereas I suppose in The Voyage Home, the romance is kind of, not exactly a subplot, but you, you know, it's, it's not a romantic comedy. Okay. It sort of plays like a romantic comedy in some ways, but ultimately there is a sort of action adventure story that's propelling things forward. Time after time, it's a bit weird. You know, what is the, what is propelling it forward? Is it him falling in love with this girl? Is it him trying to catch Jack the Ripper? Is it Jack the Ripper trying to catch him? Do you know what I mean? It's a slightly odd. I, I suppose you could tell the story without the Jack the Ripper stuff and it would be a sort of quirky, whimsical, sweet little. Uh, sci-fi film, and then somehow he'd managed to get home again. But they put this villain in, which sort of upsets the apple cart of the light frothy comedy, because it makes the film very dark. I mean, Jack the Ripper, you know, we could come on to talk about the whole, you know, Ripper and Ripperology and the sort of, you, you know, why people are so fascinated with Jack the Ripper. But, you know, the fact is he's a horrific serial killer. And as much as you can kind of turn him into a literary character... Which in a way, I, I think it does work. You know, when you were saying about Holmes as the literary character meeting Freud, the historical character, I think in some ways, Jack the Ripper is basically a real life person who has become a sort of fictional character in a sense, because we know so little about him. He has to be fictionalised. Um And arguably, Sherlock Holmes is a fictional character who has become real because on some level, people sort of believe that he did exist. And, you know, people go to Baker Street and try and find this house that doesn't exist and so on. And I think there's there's, there's something about him that he, he seems to exist outside of fiction almost. He, he's kind of slightly transcended that. I think, it, I, for me, the biggest problem with the film is that The Ripper makes it too dark at times for it to be a kind of light comedy. I mean, the first scene of this film, it's really nasty. It's this sinister sort of chilling scene where he uh, murders a prostitute in, in London and he plays this kind of horrible, sinister music on this kind of music box. I mean, this is like nothing that you would see in Star Trek. Do you know what I mean? It's really, it's really kind of gruesome. Later on, there's a scene where we see a severed hand because, uh, you know, the kooky love interest's, uh, best friend has been brutally murdered by him. I mean, we see him kind of murdering or about to murder various women throughout the film. I don't know. I, for me, that's the element that sits slightly uncomfortably it's like it's this jolly happy romp and yet the kind of the obstacle is this awful terrifying guy going around killing women and it, it just it feels like a weird mismatch do you know what i mean like the 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 ripper stuff could be it could be a sort of contemporary you know police thriller or something where they're trying to catch Jack the Ripper in the present day uh, but trying to marry that with a comedy for me it feels a bit awkward what Star Trek 4 does is it, it dispenses with the villain. You know, there is no villain in that yeah. film, really. There's the probe, but the probe, you know, is totally, you, you know, it has no personality. It has no kind of, we, we know nothing about it. It's just a sort of mystery that's it's effectively a kind of natural phenomenon, almost, the way it kind of plays out with the, you know, the storms and so on the only villains in a sense are those whalers right at the end. And we see them for about two minutes and then they turn around and run away. And I think in some ways that's the masterstroke of that film is, you know, Leonard Nimoy was very keen on the fact that there are no shots fired in the whole, you, you know, you, there are a few guns, but no one shoots anyone. There's, there's, act, there's no act of violence basically uh, in the course of that film. And I think also, you know, there's no villain really. And that's one of the things that gives it this sort of charm and this sort of sweetness And makes it so much fun and so much like a comedy and and like a rom-com and like a sort of, um, you know, it puts it in a different space from certainly most of what we consider science fiction, probably. Uh, maybe it does put it slightly in a similar realm to Back to the Future. I mean, Back to the Future does sort of have villains, but it's, it's not, you know, not in a kind of sci-fi. You know, most Star Trek films, there's like a big kind of a big bad, if you know what I mean, almost like a kind of Bond villain type villain, isn't there? Uh, Obviously, with Khan, we got that in a big way. This is the one that kind of bucks that trend. And I think that's one reason that people love it so much and that it is such a kind of popular uh, and lovable movie. I mean, I showed it to my five year old uh, who up until now, the only Star Trek he was willing to watch was the Short Trek Ephraim and Dot over and over and over again and he's always refused to watch any other Star Trek and he absolutely <laughs> loved it. <laughs> uh, oh, so, you know, good. that's kind of <laughs> it can, it's the kind of film that can work for almost all ages, I think. Anyone would enjoy it. Massive hit in Russia apparently, weirdly. Biggest <laughs> Star Trek uh film in Russia. I don't know. So for me, I think that as much as these two films, they share a lot in common, The Voyage Home is the one that absolutely nails it and it sort of shows up some of the awkward issues of time after time and maybe it's partly just that time after time feels more dated and it feels more you know it is a directorial debut it is a little bit clunky in some ways but I'm kind of curious you know I only saw this film for the first time less than a year ago I get the impression you were a fan of this going back for a while so what's your sort of history with time after time when did you first see it
1: Uh, well I don't think it was when I was super young I don't think it was a vast amount of time ago I think it was maybe about 10 years ago But I remember reading the novel first, actually. I remember reading the novel first because I'm a big... I've probably mentioned it before on this podcast, but I'm a big sucker for time travel stories generally. So I love all that kind of stuff. And I think I read the novel first. So I've read the novel a few times, and it's one of my favourite books. Incidentally, there was a sequel called Jacqueline the Ripper, in which... yeah, Yeah, written, like, a good 20, 30 years later, before Karl Alexander died... And it's not as good, but it's about Jack the Ripper's child, Jacqueline, <laughs> who ends up in the future and causing all kinds of trouble. But I, I think the book is a little better than the movie, simply because it, it, I think it, it tap, it's, a, it's given the space to explore what I think time after time does struggle with. Because I, I think your points are absolutely valid there. I think it does have a tonal imbalance it does essentially begin and end with Jack as the threat and then it sort of forgets about him for a lot of the middle while HG and Amy are falling in love and he's in, he's in San Francisco and all the, that kind of stuff. And it does become much more of a romantic comedy, so it is strange. But what I, my, I would counter with an argument that I feel like you need to have Jack in this story. Because he provides, and this is what I think the book manages to pull off. It he provides that existential terror of man, and I think this is this is essentially if there is a villain in Star Trek IV, the villain is man. And I think Spock says something along this line, these lines as well, at some point uh, when he's talking about how man has, you know, destroyed e- ecology at this point of time and all this kind of thing. And I think that's essentially what Maya's getting at. Jack I think represents the dark side of man more than he does a character. And you know, it's a credit to David Warner because David Warner is just an amazing actor as, you know, I know you and I both love love him. He's a great. In fact, did I did I did I mention this to him when we saw him at Destination Star Trek? Can you remember because I keep thinking, did I actually ask him about time after time because I've got a memory that I did.
0: I know I asked him a question, but I can't remember if it was about this film. I have a feeling you might have done and I don't think I'd seen it at that point. No. So I may, so, so my memory is hazy because I, I have a sort of vague memory of you asking a question that I didn't understand. Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> sadly, well, if I you thought... don't remember what it was and you don't remember what, he, no, <laughs> what his answer was, no, yeah, I'm i to sure say help you with that one. Yeah, but, I've, got, yeah. I've got no idea what I think he what... did. And I think he was, I think he was quite pleased that someone remembered that film and, you know, and it may well be, I don't know, I don't know whether this was like, I mean, we think of David Warner and, and Malcolm McDowell for what it's worth as, you know, classic villain actor i mean both they are two of the all-time best star trek villains yeah. you know with uh gul Madred for warner and uh soren in generations mm-hmm. who i think you know even if you don't love generations i think is a great villain and a great yeah, performance yeah. yeah and i think the two of them absolutely Uh, And the script. I mean, I do, I do think Maya's script is, is, is fun and funny. And there's a lot of great moments in there. But the two of them are really what sell the film. I mean, they're both brilliant. You know, Warner, obviously we know can play sinister and villainous, but I wonder whether this was kind of the start of that because this must be quite early in his career. Uh, and he hadn't started off playing villains. I mean, we know he played Hamlet very famously, uh, on stage in England. And then at some point it feels like he's, got a little bit typecast in these kind of slightly sinister uh, villainous roles. Um, Malcolm McDowell was already well-known for playing villains, and uh, the net, uh, the studio, I think, had to be convinced that he could play the hero. But he mm. is actually wonderful in this film. He's so mm. sweet and lovely and kind of, you know, he is a bit of an innocent. He is a bit of, I think, comparing it to the Voyage Home there's almost, you know, with the two of them, you can't help thinking Kirk is a bit more like the Ripper in a sense. Yeah. He's a bit more savvy. He's a bit more cynical. He starts swearing straight away. I mean, he doesn't always get it right, but he he's sort of adapting uh, spock Dumbass, is the you. kind of hg exactly spock is the kind of hg wells who is like <laughs> yeah, total totally clueless and innocent totally. and kind of naive and just doesn't doesn't get it but um malcolm mcdowell it you know is fantastic at playing that kind of awe and wonder you know staring up at the sky as an airplane goes past um he goes to mcdonald's and he's obsessed with the sort of formica table and just sort of <laughs> you know entranced <laughs> by everything uh yeah really and and i think i mean i feel like I'm not sure I've ever seen him play a nice guy, basically, but he does it brilliantly. You know, he plays this character who is very uh, likeable, but also interesting, you, you know, not bland. He's he's an interesting guy, but he's very much a sort of, you know, he's the hero. He's not the villain. But I think the two of them are absolutely what kind of holds that film together. These two brilliant performances of, you, you, you know, on either side, as well as, you know, the love interest um, Amy, for me, I just found her a little bit too kooky. Um, and I think it's interesting. Maya says she was very much not what he'd imagined when he wrote the script, which is an interesting element. But there's no denying they have good chemistry and they ended up, you know, getting married. So, uh, <laughs> it obviously worked out for the two of them. And, you know, the romance, I think in both these films, the romance works well. You know, the, there's a lot of charm. There's a lot of kind of, there is a lot of chemistry. There's a kind of, You you know, there's a real sort of appeal to that, and that is important to kind of sell those relationships. Um, I still feel like time after time, it feels more like a – I can see why it's a cult film. Do you know what I mean? I can see why it's sort of – it surprises me a little bit in Maya's uh, book – that he, he says basically they thought he'd made a terrible film and then the test audiences loved it and they were like, oh, okay, uh, obviously the, the someone from the studio literally ripped up his notes and said, sorry, I got it wrong. And then they opened it big and it kind of didn't flop exactly, but it didn't really perform how they were expecting. So it's kind of an interesting one, whether it works with audiences or, you know, what sort of an audience is it that loves this film and what sort of an audience is it that just slightly, you know, uh, I mean like i say i like I like it, I just don't love it
1: yeah and i i think that was probably the prevailing feeling at the time in many ways, and i think it's it's not it's not carried through with the same level of consciousness than some other films around that era did, you know, certainly in the science fiction realm or the romantic realm. it is a cult film, and I think it it's it, it's because Maya refused to sort of give in to certain things either, you know they wanted a a pop soundtrack to sort of go with the age of disco. And he said, no, I want Miklos Rosha who's done, who did like Ben-Hur and El Cid, who was considered, I think, I think Maya describes him as passé at that point, you know, 1979, this was towards the end of his career. But Miklos Rosha is one of the great composers in film history. And his score for Time After Time is beautiful. I mean, it is absolutely, you know, it's, it's, it's better in fact than Russell Garcia's beautiful score for The Time Machine, actually. And they are similar. Which again is is I think intentional. So so there are lots of touches to this that he wants to try and evoke. You know, and it's it's Maya to a T. You know, he's 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 a he's a filmmaker and a writer very much with one foot in the past. You know, he has a an encyclopedic knowledge of film history. You know, he's very much got his mind in classic romances. You know, and he's writing these kind of things. His, his mind is probably on thing. Well, I think. I think he was talking about how his mind was on stuff from like the forties. You know, you can imagine him thinking of something like Casablanca. You know, even though they're very different stories, it's that timeless element of romance. But I think this is why it's important to have Jack, though, because the whole purpose at the end is that Amy finds out that she's going to die because because Wells takes her in the time machine ahead a little bit to prove what he's saying is true, and she sees a newspaper that predicts she's going to be murdered by the Ripper and it 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 leads them to try and change history. Now that for me is the is the reason why his presence works because it is about exploring that if if he represents the dark side of man, you know, and David Warner does a great job of imbuing the 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 character with a sense of personality, then I think that's the reason why he exists in what for a lot of it, is a story which is about the love story, and is about investing you in Amy and Wells, and is about Wells as the other and the alien. And this is something that Myers talked about, and how he relates to Spock. And because you're absolutely right with this, they are the alien in a, in a different world. For Spock, it's the alien in the past, not understanding all the references. For Wells, it's the, he's an alien of the future, you know, going to McDonald's and all this kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, back in the day, I used to write scripts for fun. And I tried my hand at adapting time after time again for a modern day movie. And uh, I, I wrote about half of it, actually. And I read it back the other day. And uh, this was years ago now. This was about 10 years ago. And I, I transplanted Wells to modern day New York of something like 2012 by then. And I, I, I did it purely because I had in my mind a visual of Wells in an Apple store looking at an iPad mm. and scanning the Yay. iPad and going, this is amazing. This is, a you know. So you could almost recreate this this idea in diff- in any time period. Now you could put Wells in the year twenty twenty one and have him. I think there was a. I think there was a. a I'd be terribly indulgent here because I'm laughing at my own joke. But there's a, there's a line in that script where he, uh, somebody says, "Oh, well, you can find that on your smartphone," and he says, "Smartphone," and he's just confused by this. And it's just, I just like the idea of Wells, you know, being able to play that role of an alien in a completely different world. And I think, I think that's essentially why Time After Time is maybe a bit of a juxtaposition, in a way that The Voyage Home is, in that it's, it's taking these characters from this utopian future and it's telling a story about how the past and our mistakes of the past almost cost us that future. You know, Had they not gone back and rescued George and Gracie, then the probe, this like you say, this force of nature, this natural phenomenon, this benign entity that is not evil... You know, he's not a bad guy. It's just there to communicate for whatever reason and we never know why and that's wonderful. We never know what really what that was about. If that hadn't happened, if they hadn't gone back in time and got those whales, the earth would have probably been destroyed. You know, the Federation might have collapsed. You know, well, there could have been massive consequences and, and it is almost like the past calling to the future and, you know, and saying, you, you need to, you know, you need to do this better. You know, and that's, I think, part of the message of time after time. There's that great scene when wells tracks jack down into his hotel room and jack the ripper plays the tv and the tv is just full of mu- murder war violence explosions bombs and he says this is your utopia wells this is this it's my future and it's it's a chilling it's a wonderful moment it's it's, it's good in the books. it's great in the film because it is absolutely that idea that you know you have i think it's almost like the, you have to be careful <laughs> Not to take the future for granted, and I think that's that's a recurring theme. I think that's almost something that's happening these days with Star Trek. It, you know, it's about not taking the future for granted. So I think I like that. I like the the sort of existentialism, the nihilism of this story. And it is much softer in the in the Voyage Home, and it is more of a romp, you know. But it, it's still there in certain places, and he repeats certain things. There's that scene where um, Kirk and Spock go to the watch uh, the, the, the the watchmaker guy. I think it is. And um Oh they repeat so I mean And that's in that's in the time after time. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yes. They they both go to an antique shop uh because they have no money and they have to pawn an antique. They both I mean it's even more specific than that. They both have scenes involving a pair of spectacles that yeah. gets caught in a time loop, basically, because yeah. Wells breaks <laughs> his spectacles and then goes and takes his old spectacles from the museum, which presumably are spectacles that he's gonna go back and then buy or have fit have the other ones fixed i, I, I don't know i'm a bit like captain jane when it comes to <laughs> these i can't quite get my head around it but you know basically there's this eternal loop of spectacles kirk has the same thing he pawns the <laughs> spectacles that bones gave him and uh, and he says that's the great thing he can buy them for me again presumably from mm-hmm. the same antique shop which we imagine is still in operation in the 23rd century <laughs> uh so yeah they, they both have this they, lots of they both have a head injury that leads someone to go into hospital um they're both in san francisco as i say they both have i mean this Maybe it's just a sort of time travel trope, but they both have to go and get a newspaper to find out what date it is. Uh, they both arrive and almost cause a traffic accident and someone shouts at them. Uh, you, you know, they're literally the same beats kind of being played over and over. They both feature museums, which, you know, museums aren't that common in mainstream movies. Do you know what I mean? One of them features an aquarium, one of them features a museum. This maybe gives us an insight into Maya's sort of uh, kind of worldview somehow but yeah there's there's there are a lot of parallels they both have this kind of really trippy approach to time travel i mean the the way the special effects are done in both films the time travel is frankly bizarre i mean in the voyage home you've got these giant heads floating around haven't you it it, it does feel extremely trippy time i like the time, time after time one more because time he- after time it, yeah, it's, it's the story of the time he's missed, isn't it? But it's, it's the done story in that. of the 20th century. It's great, yeah, exactly. Yes, mm. yeah, with the audio and and it, and it's quite powerful in some ways the way that it's mm. done. But it also has these kind of very sort of 2001 sort of trippy visuals, <laughs> um, weird, weird sight. It's not. I mean, not that the DeLorean is exactly realistic time travel necessarily but it's it feels more grounded somehow you know you go really fast you kind of zap through something and then there you are this is like more existential kind of slightly surreal approach yeah, uh, to time travel but it, it's, mm. it is absolutely it, yeah it's it's not the same film but it there are so many parallels. I mean, I joked to you when we were talking about the idea of doing this, uh, they could have called the voyage home time after time after time, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, because it is that. basically, it's kind of the same, it's kind yeah. of the same concept in yeah. a way. Although ironically, not, you know, it wasn't Meyer's idea. This was a script Mm. that already existed. I mean, he says he discovered, basically Nimoy said to him, would you mind, because they told him they had this crisis, these guys were writing the script, they hated the script, you know, they didn't know what to do. And he said, well, can I read the script? And Nimoy basically said, actually, we'd much rather you don't read the script, (laughs) but we'll tell you the kind of general idea. So the idea for the story was there. And obviously, Meyer only wrote the middle chunk of it. He didn't write the kind of bookends uh, you know, set in the future. He only wrote the kind of set the section set in the past. Um I mean that's another interesting element. I think that both these films they have the Voyage Home has has bookends. You know, it has the future as uh, you know Act One is in the future, act two and three, as Maya describes them, are in the past, then Act Four is in the future. Time after Time doesn't have an Act Four. They just they go back in the time machine and then we get, you know, uh, text on the screen saying, giving us a, an idea of what happened next. But it kind of it ends at that point. It doesn't, for whatever reason, it doesn't choose to actually show us Amy going back into the past. But so they share that kind of structure to some extent, anyway. But the weird thing is, of course, you know. So Maya was brought in to essentially rewrite this script that bore a lot of similarities to this uh, film that he'd already made, but. It, You know, I don't know whether, how many of these beats were in there. Apparently, one reason it didn't work, the original script, is it was written as a vehicle for Eddie Murphy, who wanted to be in a Star Trek film. Um, and so they'd kind of written it again, I suppose, a little bit like, you know, thinking about Rain Robinson in, um, uh, in Future's End, you know, you can kind of imagine maybe the, the Eddie Murphy role was a bit, sort of along those lines. I mean, who knows how that was going to work? I don't know if anyone's ever seen that script. I'd be fascinated no. to see it mm. uh, and see if it was as bad as, you know, as everyone said it was. But it is an interesting one that they basically, I sort of wonder, were they were they conscious when they decided to call Meyer in? Is it just because he's the guy who rescued them before when they were in a pickle with Sturtick 2? Or was someone thinking, oh, you know, present day uh, <laughs> San Francisco time travel <laughs> story, Oh, you know, we we know a guy who who might be the perfect one for that. You know, he's he's got a bit of experience. He, he'll know how to do it. Could be a bit of both because of
1: you know it wasn't that much earlier than than this. You know, there's only about five years in it really, five or six years in it between these two films. So you know, time after time would have been better remembered then than it is now, probably. So yeah, it's it, I think it's a bit of both. I think it's probably more so that he wrote the Wrath of Khan and he was you know. Credited with the, that era, really, of transforming that era. But you know, it probably was in the in the in the mind's eye, and I think they just knew that he had a real knack for that humanizing of Star Trek and being able to write convincing. I mean, the, the way he writes those scenes in the Voyage Home are just wonderful because he f- he finds the characters, he places those characters beautifully in that time period, and he pulls out for all of them these little moments and these little things that make them seem they they they're all clearly alien quote unquote to that time period and you know and there's there's no getting away from the fact realistically that cast and that crew are the most human quote unquote star trek characters we've ever seen in anything mm-hmm. in this entire franchise in terms of being grounded and down to earth even when they're in the 23rd century they talk like they're in the 20th. You know, you only have to look at like the um the row 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 your boat stuff in The Final Frontier. You know, that they they could be they could be in 1988 doing that, <laughs> not like 23 whatever, 22 whatever. It's like you know, that they they bring the the by the nature of the way they play those parts, they bring that humanity to it. And I so I think Maya had a real skill of being able to place all of these ideas, all of these tropes, all of these these this juxtaposition of past and future, and these the themes that Nimoy wanted to get in there, and and make it entertaining, and may, not make it polemic, not make it preachy, and that and that's what is that's what he does with time after time. Time after time is an adventure, it's a romp. It is tonally all over the place at points. It is quite dark, as would as you can imagine with a with a Jack the Ripper in there. But it is ultimately more of a story, more of a romantic adventure, than it is a preachy polemic on the, you know, the power, the meaning of utopia and man's inhumanity to man and man's self destruction. You know, he he finds a way to get to these weighty themes because he's a su- super intelligent man, very literate, as you know. I mean, you know him, you've spoken to him, and he's he does it in such an accessible way that I think that's why the Voyage Home is beloved and why time after time. I think it, it's funny, I, I put on Twitter that I'd watched it and I had so many people suddenly starting to go, oh, that film's great, I love that film. That film is, you know, and, and it's one of those that when people remember it, they go, oh, actually, <laughs> there's a lot to love in that movie. So I think I think that's the skill of what he does and why both of these films work, even though they they approach the
0: same things in somewhat slightly different ways. There is a lot to love in it, yeah. I mean, I don't mean to sound too hard on it. I I absolutely see why people have a lot of fondness for it. And I can imagine it's the kind of film as well, if you saw it, you know, late one night where you, you didn't really know what to expect and it was just on TV. Do you know what I mean? Like, Mm. and at the right kind of age, you would probably think it was amazing. And, and, You can see why it would become a sort of cult classic. Incidentally, apparently, because I I looked this up, I always assumed it was connected to the song, uh, time after time. Oh yeah. Mm. Uh, but there's no, there's no connection because the song was some years later and the song was just that the lyric, uh, came from this movie happened to be on that week on TV oh, right, and, and the okay. title was in the TV guide. Um, and so, so that's how it worked its way into the lyric and into the title of the song. Um, but anyway, I can sort of imagine, you know, in that kind of, you know, you and I uh, sort of growing up when we did before the age of, uh, I and mean, I guess it's all different for kids these days, but you know, when you would just kind of happen upon slightly random films that you'd never heard mm. of, this would be mm. the kind of one that you would... That would stay with you you know that you would remember and it, it is a lot of fun as i say it's got great performances it's got a good script uh it's it's got a lot going for it um even if in some ways i, I do feel that it, maybe the whole doesn't quite hang together quite as well as the voyage home i mean you could say you know the voyage home is almost yes it's repeating a lot of stuff it's also kind of a second draft of the same ideas in some ways and maya actually talks about how some elements that didn't work in Time After Time, he managed to kind of perfect in The Voyage Home. So, for example, there was a joke that he'd written and and that was filmed, I think, for Time After Time and then got cut about Wells encountering a guy playing... Uh, contemporary music uh, on a ghetto blaster basically but he couldn't he couldn't quite make it work and he had this joke about it was a chinese guy and then he made some joke about oriental music and it was all just too complicated and then obviously he had another go at that with the scene in the voyage home on the bus uh with the punk and spock doing the vul- vulcan nerve pitch mm. which is just much more simple like it's the same it's essentially the same joke but much more simple uh and much better staged somehow and it doesn't require the audience to know anything or remember anything or you know it's it's just a kind of perfect moment Uh, and obviously created this brilliant comedy moment but the other thing of course is i think um the voyage home you know great script from Maya, great comic script from Maya. i mean he's already written this great uh dramatic script with the wrath of khan this time uh really proving his kind of comedy chops but also brilliantly directed i mean i think nimoy is absolutely most at home he wanted to do a nice film he wanted to do a funny film and i think as much as we think of spock as quite a serious character his sensibility obviously is very well suited to that because it's directed really kind of deftly it's very clever the way it's done i mean even things like the use of of extras the use of you know the the kind of walk-on characters who have one or two lines all of that stuff is kind of handled brilliantly. And, and you know, you talk about the, the little moments that different characters get. I mean, one of my favourite scenes in the film is the interrogation with Chekhov, which is not a long scene, but just brilliantly written, brilliantly performed. The pacing is fantastic. The editing, you, you know, all of those elements really work uh for the comedy and make the comedy land. And so, you know, I think that's probably my favourite scene with Chekhov that I can think of in Star Trek um you, you know this you know name my, my name no my name I don't know your name <laughs> you know it's, just, it's, it's silly but it's 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 funny it's witty and it, and it really works um and I think it's a it's a good it's a it's a sort of perfect marriage somehow that movie of Maya's strengths and Nimoy's strengths kind of working together somehow M- you know more so than time after time I suppose maybe the romance works. It's not that the comedy doesn't work. There there are lots of good comic moments, but then maybe they feel a little bit clever or they feel a little bit arched somehow. Whereas the the comedy in the Voyage Home feels very natural. Um, it doesn't feel forced. I think that's and obviously they tried to do it again with Insurrection. They tried to do a a kind of nice comedy film. And it just felt, to me, very strange. You know, the jokes, you know, your boobs firming up or whatever it is. It it always felt a little bit forced, the thing with the joystick. Mm. Whereas the, the Voyage Home manages to get as much comedy as possible out of those characters and out of that situation. But without ever feeling, even with this kind of wacky, fantastical plot, without ever stretching credibility too much you believe it do you know what I mean it feels organic you believe it exactly Mm. which I think you get with like the best DS9 episodes where they go for something comedic again you kind of believe it because it's grounded in character and in the situation um, rather than just sort of stretching things to try and get to a joke
1: yeah it's built it's built out out of character that's exactly it you know Spock's whole uh, misunderstanding of, of you know 20th century vernacular is born out of his arc in the film which is him trying to understand the human side of himself again which is what we see in the beginning with the what is it Vulcan and you know it's all the um how do you feel all that stuff you know that that is part of his character it's so so it, it's born out of it's born out of these aspects you know and and I think even 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 in those small moments you know with Sulu being the pilot or, you know, Scotty having fun pretending he's like this Scottish genius <laughs> He's come over, you know, <laughs> and the hello computer, all that stuff. It's just, it just feels organic from those characters and from their, from who they are in a way that not all Star Trek comedy manages to capture. Like you say, only the best stuff manages to tap into. And I think Maya just fundamentally understands that, you know. And then because it's also it's there in his other films, you know. It's there in the Wrath of Khan. It's there in the Undiscovered Country. Much as they are um, some more serious movies than this, and they are darker movies, there is still comedy. There are still lines in there that make you
0: laugh, you know, or moments. Oh yeah.
1: So he he does need have a tranquilizer. A...
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's one of my favourite. Um, I think my favourite Bones line. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, there's 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 so many. Um, so I just think he's got that that the, the gift for that, and it does work better in the Voyage Home. There there is no there is no getting away from that. I think you're right when you say that the Voyage Home is like the the better draft of of much of the elements of Time After Time for sure. And I think it shows his evolution as a filmmaker, even though he didn't direct the Voyage Home. You almost feel like he does direct those scenes. It's weird. It's like it, it's almost like he's in symbiosis with Nimoy, and that that I know they didn't co-direct. I'm not suggesting that for a minute, but it feels almost like like Nimoy's directing as Maya would have done. And I think that's a testament to the writing more than anything else.
0: I've always felt. I mean, I know a lot of people love Star Trek Three, and I don't hate it, but I, I do feel this this movie feels so much more. Uh, cohesive somehow it feels so even though it's split across two different timeframes it just it feels much more confident and kind of Solid somehow. To me, Star Trek 3 has some of those qualities that maybe Time After Time does of a movie of, you, you know, being a debut, being a little bit mm. sort of, um, rough around the know, edges. It's that, se- exactly, rough around the edges and that stu- sense of sort of lots of stuff going in different directions slightly, um, being a little bit messy, uh, you know, which can be fun and can, can has, you know, and having wonderful moments and, and lots of, you, you know, great stuff in there. But, uh, definitely The Voyager Chain for me is the one that has more of a kind of cohesive, it holds together really well in the same way as the Roth of khan i think holds together really well it, it is you know it knows what it is and it does what it is brilliantly in both those instances even though they're such different films and i think that is a massive you know testament to nicholas Meyer to be able to you know reinvent star trek once as a kind of whatever you want to call it you know hornblower style uh gritty a sort of you know War drama uh, in the Rotha Khan, and then to reinvent it again as you know, as effectively a kind of uh, contemporary romantic comedy, in a sense, with the Voyage Home, and, and in both cases, as you say, to not feel like those characters have been kind of yanked into a new genre or into a new situation, but to feel like they kind of organically belong there. I just wanted to pick up on something that you said that I thought was interesting about, you know, why is it that obviously with time travel? I mean, we think of time travel. You were saying earlier, you know, would you go to the past? Would you go to the future? Obviously we're, we're seduced by the idea of time travel and going to different times, but both these stories are time travel stories that don't involve going that, you know, they don't, they don't take place largely in a time other than our time. Do you know what I mean? They're contemporary. And I suppose that is quite interesting. So they're time travel stories, but they're not you know back to the future okay they went into the 1950s they went into the whatever it was 2050s or something they went back to the wild west uh they don't spend all that much time in 1980s you know california or wherever they are but in both these stories we're doing a time travel story and again obviously in future's end you know the same thing uh that is actually all about our time and that is kind of giving us a perspective on our time and is about that sort of culture clash or that time clash, as you say. And, you know, how do, how do very different people see us and how does that help us to see ourselves? And obviously with the ecological message of the voyage home, that's a big part of it is it's sort of like, you know, it's, it's sort of imagining, okay, imagine us in the future, how will we look back on the way we've behaved now, in a sense, and the damage we've done. And you're you're right, I suppose, to pick up on that, you know, you were saying time after time feels quite nihilistic. I think that's true in some ways, despite being a romantic comedy romp. And The Voyage Home has that element because it has this, you know, it's too, in the future, it's too late. You know, we've made a terrible mistake. It's going to cause the end of all life on Earth. And it's only because in Star Trek, they're able to do time travel that it's possible to Save us from that. Do you know what I mean? They do, they do kind of save us from our own mistakes in a sense. But I think it's kind of interesting. So, so they're on one level, they're about shining a light on who we are now. But now, of course, you know, it's 2021. These are both period pieces. I mean, you know, whether it's 1979 or 1980, you know, whatever it was, or in the case of the Voyager episode, 1996 or whatever, it, it's not our contemporary world, you know, part of the pleasure is also seeing the old hairstyles. It's kind of, uh, for us, it's the sort of, you know, it's a period drama, effectively. And I was kind of struck by this watching it with my son, who, it you know, for me, well, certainly the Voyager one, I was kind of watching, you know, when that was broadcast. I remember the 90s. And I, all, all that stuff is kind of familiar to me, if in a sort of nostalgic way. The 80s, I remember, it, you know, though less well. I mean, Time After Time is a bit before my time. But, you know, I was having to say to him, uh, cause I think I may have said to him, Oh, they're going to go back in time to our time or something. And then I sort of realized, Well, for him, it's not our time. So I said, Oh, they're going back in time to when mummy and daddy were little. Hmm. Um, but to him, that's probably just as alien as like for us going back to the Second World War is. <laughs> Do you know what I yeah. Mean? <laughs> and then, he, and then he was saying to me at one point, He said, are they, are they back in Star Trek time now? Or, you know, so it's like they're these kind of arbitrary time periods. Uh, and one of them isn't necessarily any more familiar. Or kind of real than the other. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I think there's that interesting element of it that that you know we're coming at it from kind of a third time period. And in some ways, maybe part of the problem with time after time for me is it fe- it does feel much more dated, weirdly, than the voyage home. Insofar as there are these kind of moments, well, there are moments in the script that I think just wouldn't fly today. There's a joke uh, which I think is is a bit uncomfortable where. Uh, Wells is kind of saying this woman who's very forward and this, you know, sort of emancipated woman who's asked him out on a date and so on is basically, um, Trying to encourage him to sleep with her. Uh, and he keeps sort of saying, are you, you know, are you sure? Are you sure about this? I'm not, you, you know, I guess thinking in this sort of Victorian way, is he corrupting her or something? And she says, uh, my God, Herbert, I'm practically raping you, uh, which I think mm. is like a dodgy enough line from our perspective now. But the fact that it then literally cuts immediately to Jack the Ripper in the red light district looking for a prostitute to kill, it's very, you know, and I don't know if that's. It sort of feels like I can't quite not be deliberate, but it's, it, there are these elements that are uncomfortable. And also to be honest, you know, even in more recent years, Jack the Ripper, okay, Jack the Ripper was in an original series episode. Jack the Ripper is, as I say, a real person who has become a sort of larger than life fictional character that people are fascinated with and that reappears in literature and so on. But there is also this sort of question these days of, you know, why are we so obsessed with this guy? Uh, you, you know, what, what is it about that we're kind of fixated that you can go on Ripper tours, you can go to a Ripper museum, that people get this sort of thrill out of, you know, whether it's about trying to solve the case, whether it's about the sort of fascination with this man, that he's, he's, he is almost not celebrated exactly, but you know, and I don't know if it's exactly glamorized, but he is kind of put on a weird sort of pedestal as a, a monster, but as a sort of fascinating and important figure. And there was a big sort of debate around this a couple of years ago. I don't know whether you've read Hallie Rubenhold's book, The Five... Uh, is a yet. book where no i know of it. it it's a it's a really interesting book and she basically what she did was she investigated the lives of the victims of jack the ripper and so she wrote this book which you know tells you essentially as much as could be ascertained about them including the fact that uh, in many cases they weren't uh probably prostitutes as was generally as is generally assumed to be the case uh they were women who were sleeping rough for various reasons and you know, there's a whole sort of complicated historical context, but the fact that we tend to simplify the story to, oh, he went around killing prostitutes, is another sort of aspect of this, like, weird interplay of sex and violence and, and what it is that the Ripper represents to us somehow. Uh, but what she did, which was a very clever, I think, and controversial move, is she literally never talks about him at all. She, she, she writes this whole book all about his victims and has this almost this sort of disdain for the kind of world of ripperology and like who was this guy and why was he doing these things and so on she has no interest whatsoever in this man and the awful crimes that he committed she's only interested in these women and their lives which were obviously you know tragically cut short by this person who went around killing them and it's a very bold thing to do i think to basically sort of reclaim these stories and it's something that now we see you know whenever there are stories of um women who are murdered by men. And it happened recently with um Sarah Everard, uh the the young woman who was murdered just a couple of months ago. This sort of move to say uh I mean it's it's quite a sort of politicized thing to sort of say, let's not talk about the killer. You know, don't give the killer the benefit of of attention and publicity and so on. Focus on the the victim and their life and and, you know, who they were and kind of celebrate that to some extent uh and mourn them and so on but basically you know don't let this man uh not only take away these women's lives but sort of take away their stories in a sense and make and make from their deaths himself into this kind of uh, larger than life figure. So I think that's another reason why in some ways it would be harder now to tell a story where Jack the Ripper was a main character even as the villain than it was, you know, maybe in 1979, obviously a very different uh time and we, we you know, those kind of moves hadn't been made but we've sort of, you know, we're sort of coming to the time, I think the Ripper Museum might have closed down recently as well where that kind of slightly ghoulish fascination with the Ripper as this historical character has become a little bit more uncomfortable and we're kind of questioning that a little bit more. Yeah, it's it's very we've, interesting. we cancelled him, basically. The, the <laughs>
1: Ripper's
0: been you know, cancelled finally. Duncan, he's been consequenced. This, this is what well, I keep saying. Con- yeah, well, definitely. There there is, <laughs> well, I mean, there- if anyone deserves <laughs> consequencing, then it's going to be I, him, isn't it?
1: But, I yeah. always say that cancel culture doesn't exist. Consequence culture exists. And finally, consequence culture is catching up to, uh, to Jack. I, th- I think it's very interesting what you're saying I think I can totally see why that in a way dates time after time because it does kind of trivialise him in a way you know it turns him into this science fiction villain get, steals a time machine goes off to the future yeah okay he ends up in lost in eternity you know presumably suffering a kind of forever death you know in some sort of quasi time space or whatever but you know it, 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 it wants to punish him at the end don't get me you know don't get me wrong but Ultimately, it is a bit salacious in that it sort of ports the Ripper into this age of disco, where he goes on slaying, and it, it, it is it is turning him into that. And you know, and, and lots of lots of shows did that in the past. Lots of TV shows, you know, Jack, um, Babylon Five did it. You know, there was an episode of Babylon Five which which updated Jack the Ripper into sort of like a, an alien inquisitor guy, and it, it's it's a fascinating episode of television. But it does it does place him in a different context, and it almost leads you to forget that whoever this guy was, he was a brutal, sadistic maniac, you know? And and so you're right. I think I think it is... We are at a point now where, you know, I did, I, I was going to say, you know, maybe this film would be right for an update, but would it? And if you did it, would you do it differently? Would you not have it be Jack the Ripper? You know, would you have it be a different kind of story? You know, it does make you wonder. Um, and so I think, I think, yes... I think it's good that that's happening. But at the same time, I feel like there is still a fascination with murder and killers. Look at true crime. Look at how that's exploded in oh, yeah. the last yeah, five yeah. years. But it does also feel like they're deconstructing them more. It's less about, let's salivate over the pictures of all these dead people and you know talk about the mystery of him. Let It's more about unpicking all of these horrible killers and and, and figuring out, who they were without necessarily being too lascivious. And so I think that might be the change. I think there will always be a fascination in these kind of people. And what especially when nobody knows who they are. I mean look at the Zodiac. That's another one, the Zodiac killer. Who is essentially the the 20th century's Jack the Ripper in many ways, you know, with the mythology built around him. But I think they'll always be interested in these kind of characters. But it's maybe the the modern-day choice is not to place them in this realm of being the bad guy, quote-unquote, in these sort of hyper-real, heightened scenarios. Maybe that's what maybe should change to respect the, you know, however long ago Jack the Ripper was, 150 years ago, nearly, these people still died and they still deserve that respect out of that. So it's very interesting. It's an interesting take. It doesn't mean that time after time is dated too much i don't think so but i do think it's interesting looking at it
0: through that lens where maybe it's a tad tasteless now it's of its time i mean you 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 have to see it as a product of its time which is fair enough and obviously the voyage Mm -hmm. home is a product of its time in terms of you know the kind of stylings and the you know the way that the 1980s comes across but i suppose it's done with a lot more innocent, you know. It, it is. A, yeah, it yeah. is a nice. It is. Nimoy succeeded in making his nice Star mm. Trek film. You know, it is a nice film. It's a lovely film. Uh, mm. Time after time, is a quirky, funny, strange, weird, it's odd, uh, quite compelling, oddball film. Yeah, mm. exactly. But it's it's not it's not a nice film in, in that sense. I suppose. Interestingly, I mean. You know, you were saying, you know, how do you do it today? And you mentioned your own idea where you updated it to 2012 or whatever. There was a few years ago. I mean, I haven't seen it. I don't know whether any of our listeners have seen it. There was an attempt to remake Time After Time oh, uh, yeah. in 2017 as a TV series. Now, I don't know. I forgot I about seen this. It I've, just, I've just looked it up on Wikipedia and there's not a huge amount about it. But interestingly, it was developed by Kevin Williamson, who I think was the screenwriter of Scream. Scream. Was he, and like loads of kind of slasher The Uh, faculty and you know story i know what you did last summer all that which suggests to me the vibe might be less of the kind of quirky romantic comedy fish out of water and more leaning into the kind of ripper side of it which which again you know i mean i mean that's only you know whatever four years ago and maybe things have moved on a bit in those four years but i can sort of i suppose maybe that's part of it i I'm not saying you can't tell a story with Jack the Ripper necessarily, but maybe there's a way of doing it and taking that a bit more seriously and taking the kind of murder a bit more seriously. I sort of feel like in time after time, the the murders are both quite horrific and yet almost incidental to the plot and kind of, do do you know what I mean? And there's this sort of sense Mm. of, yes. So he has this kind of angst about, oh gosh, I've allowed Jack the Ripper to be let loose on the 1970s. But at the same time, he really doesn't do much about it until it's his own girlfriend who is in danger of being murdered mm. you know mm. or and and then it turns out her friend it, it, there's this weird sense again the sort of darkness of this film i mean like oh great it's fine it's all right she wasn't murdered it's it's only her best friend who's been brutally murdered and hacked to pieces and we sort of forget about that and she doesn't you know i mean she's a bit upset about it but it's like i mean I don't know. And this is a comedy, but you know, it's, it's a weird, I don't know. It's, 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 I do think it's a weird mixture. Um, and I, I would, I'd be interested to see it. I, my guess is that the more recent TV series goes down the kind of dark, uh, gritty sort of, um, you know, the, the the kind of crime. Exactly the kind of true, you know, not true crime, but you know, down that kind of line rather than down the comedy line. I, I think it's hard to marry those two things together. And yes, you're right. Obviously, people love crime stories and people are obsessed with them. And I'm, you know, as capable as anyone else of getting sucked into the latest detective drama or whatever. And they can be very gruesome and, and, and quite horrible at times. But, um, I, I do think sometimes in time after time, the kind of proximity of the, light humour to the really nasty stuff sometimes feels a little bit uncomfortable, certainly for, you know, modern tastes, but, you know, I think it's definitely worth seeing. I mean, if only, as I say, for these two, you know, fantastic, uh, Star Trek guest stars to see them in these two roles kind of yeah. playing off against each other. Brilliant thing. I think it's, it, I would absolutely recommend it. You can get it. I mean, I,
1: I, it, I bought yeah. it on, um, Blu-ray from, uh, Warner brothers uh, so yeah, you know there's commentary on there I think as well, uh, commentary track. So yeah, it's it's available, it's around, so it's not been lost to the ages. It's definitely worth watching. It's it's a lot of fun. But
0: read the book. The book is better. I I really think okay. that the book right. is better. The book the book is good stuff. Um, That's interesting. I'm normally yeah. a big fan of of reading the book, and I didn't in this case because I what what the sense I had got is that the film had got better reviews at the time than the book did, but. Um, it might oh, have done. That's interesting. Maybe, mm. maybe I'll go back and check that out. Cause, yeah. And there is something interesting about that kind of, when you have two things developed in tandem, but go, mm. I guess we had it with Game of Thrones most recently, yeah. you know, where the books are still being written and, and they're kind of, you know, maybe like the first half is is the same story and then you get different writers going off in different mm. directions. But... Meyer, I suppose, had a certain degree of freedom in that although he was adapting a book, he was adapting a book that hadn't been written yet. So you can kind of, you know, that that gives him the option to take things in his own direction. Mm.
1: Those Game of Thrones books will still be being written in 2286 or whatever it
0: is. Yeah, by the time <laughs> there's like the third remake of the Game of Thrones TV show probably by then. <laughs> yeah, God knows. You yeah. get yeah. to do it all over again and, you know, get the ending right this time. <laughs> Well, anyway, I look forward to seeing you next time, Tony. Do you want to just remind our listeners, if they want to get hold of a copy of your new book, in the meantime, how they can do that?
1: Yeah, it's uh, called Star Trek History and Us. Um, you can find that if you just type it in on Amazon, you'll find it um, wherever you are. Um, it's about it should be available to order through um, all good bookstores as well. And uh, if you want to buy it directly from the publisher, um, you can buy it from Macfarlane Books, who is the publisher. Um, so I don't know if it's necessarily on shelves as such, but you can definitely order it. So um, yeah, it's it definitely be- on my shelf. Ah, <laughs> very good, very yeah, it, good, very it good. It could be on yours too, dear it listeners. could, it so, could you know. it It could be. And, you know, there have been a couple of people who've uh, got one or two listeners of this show who have actually bought the book, which I'm very grateful for already. Um, So, yeah, hopefully uh, you'll enjoy it. It is kind of a, and I know know we'll talk about it in more detail, but it is kind of a whistle-stop tour through Trek history and Trek cultural history, sort of drawing together various strands we've talked about on Primitive Culture. So I do think if you like this podcast, you may get something out of it really so yes please do look it up and i'll be super grateful if you do and um you can find just generally more about that book and links and stuff if you check out my twitter um at aj Blackwriter, and that you'll find all the links to everything i shoot off variously from there as well
0: check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the star trek universe and beyond you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com/slash TrekFM. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit Patreon.com/slash TrekFM, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/slash TrekFM, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at MissAmyNelson, Clara and Tony were two of the former co hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at, at ClarageneMC and Tony at, at AJBlackWriter. You blended all right.